0: Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am your host, Jeff Sackman, and with me as always is Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us as usual. And Carl, I think you would agree that there is an absolute boatload of tennis to talk about right now. I'm exhausted just from trying to follow the Fed Cup over the weekend um, but I don't want to start with Fed Cup. I want to start with Rafael Nadal and La Decima, which could be the, the first the first Decima of many this season. Um, he had a relatively easy path to the title with um, Vavrinka, Djokovic, and Murray all losing early. He ended up facing Albert Ramos-Vignolas in the final. Um But Carl, let's let's kick off with this. We've seen earlier in the season that Federer is is really back in close to peak Federer form on hard courts. Do you think that that Nadal is something close to peak Nadal right now on clay courts as well?
1: I think he showed some flashes of peak Nadal for sure. It's a little tough to judge because, as you discovered, his draw was historically easy for a Masters champ. But... Still, to beat Zverev 6-1, 6-1, to, to win a number of 6-1 sets along the way, that's a pretty good sign. On the other hand, losing a set to Kyle Edmund, not such a great sign, and he didn't face a top-ten player. It's kind of been the story of his season that he's had relatively easy draws unless he's had to face Federer, and then he's lost. So I, that's not going to be a problem for him this clay season because is not really playing, and it probably wouldn't have been a problem even if Federer were playing before the French Open, but I think we need to see more evidence. On the other hand, the way Murray and Djokovic have been playing this year and the way Vavrinka kind of always plays with either winning tournaments or losing early being the norm, there's a chance Rafa could dominate the clay season without ever proving to me or anybody else that he could beat those guys because they might not be able to beat the other guys who are in the way between them and Rafa.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I I feel like we're repeating ourselves a little bit from from the last couple of weeks. That it's it's so tough to get a handle on what's going on on the ATP tour right now because we just aren't seeing the top guys play each other. Besides, like you mentioned, Roger Rafa keeps happening. But as long as Djokovic is losing early, Murray's losing early. These guys are are are, are sitting out tournaments. Um, even though they're all aging, they're still the, the closest thing we have to the to a current big four, a current, a current mix at the top of the field. And we're not seeing them play each other like we have so many times in the past. Um, every week, we, we still look at the draw and think, ooh, um, Nadal's in Djokovic's have One of them, That we were talking about this last week when we were speculating on a semifinal between the two of those, a chance that they could face Murray in the final. And it all kind of proved irrelevant when Nadal ends up facing <laughs> David Goffin in the semis and then Albert Ramos-Vinolas in the finals um it's, it's it's like the field has kind of dropped out from from below roger and rafa this year so it's going to be interesting i think going forward to see to see whether that changes whether Djokovic and murray can right the ship because murray has played well on on clay courts the last couple of seasons but he's not traditionally a uh, really strong on the surface so it, it seems like it would be easy if he especially if he's not at 100 percent, to kind of fall back into that and I'm assuming he'll keep showing up. He he took a late entry into Barcelona next. Well, this week already he's he's playing in the next few days. Um. So so he's going to give it a go, and and maybe maybe this week was just you know, he just had an off day against Ramos Vignolas. but but it is tough to see see what's happening now. One guy that that we've been wanting to talk about for a little while. We talked about a little bit at the end of last week is Diego Schwartzman. He he played it all in the quarterfinals. Um, he actually played pretty well leading up to the quarterfinals against against, um, against Rafa. And Carl, you, you noticed when Schwartzman upset Roberto Bautista Agu um, in the second round, I believe, both players won over half of their return points, which I, I ran some numbers. You can look it up on, on the Tennis Abstract blog. It's almost unheard of. It, that, that statistical happened since 2014, where both players in a... In a tour level men's match, when more than half of their return points. And even though it's an oddity, it, it speaks to what's unique, really, about Schwartzman that he's, I won't say he's the best returner in the game because you have to probably talk about Djokovic and it all long before you get to Schwartzman. But if you, if you look at the numbers, Schwartzman, it, it, he's winning return points at almost the same rate as those guys. And the question is for, for Diego Schwartzman, who's really short by professional tennis standards and and just now showing up in all these tour level draws solidly in the top 40 at this point um he'll be defending his title from last year in istanbul pretty soon Um, the question is how far can he climb i mean what is are his physical limitations is his his lack of a of any kind of offensive service game um going to stop him at some point carl what do you think what do you think the ceiling is for a guy like schwartzman
1: So according to the ATP site, he's 5'7", 141 pounds. Sorry to our international listeners. Uh, I guess since Jeff is in Norway, I'll, I'll give it as 170 centimeters, 64 kilograms. He's a small guy. I think he's got some similarities to, let's say, David Ferrer, but he doesn't have quite as much size and power. So I don't see him getting to the top 10. But one thing that's really encouraging is he's started occasionally winning matches and even consecutive matches off of clay. Because I think Schwarzman's career, till a couple of years ago, he was hovering in the rankings in an area where he could play on clay almost all year at challengers and get you know enough ranking points to make a living and occasionally appear in some main draws on clay and occasionally do some damage, like in Istanbul last year. I think also the year before he had a good run. So if he can sustain this past the clay season and win a match or two at the U S open, I could certainly see it happening. I think it would help a lot if he had draws against other guys who were most comfortable on clay at those tournaments. I mean, we're, we're not in the period of tennis history when there were guys who pretty much were terrible on one surface, but there, there are a couple who are still out there. And uh, Schwartzman is no longer quite that way. So he could actually finish the year, let's say, in the top 20. He's, he's number 25 in the race right now, which does not include his points from his tumble last year.
0: Yeah, that, that's encouraging. I mean, as, as you know, Carl, I've been a huge Schwartzman fan. Um, no pun intended, I guess, for Pretty much as long as i've been aware of him i'm always rooting for guys like that who who have to play differently um, just by virtue of their size and he's, as you point out until the last year or so he's played almost a full year-round schedule of clay court challengers and the occasional tour level events he can get into and that's a great way for a player like that to to, to get into the top 100 maybe even the top 70 or 60 or so but but it's almost impossible to go beyond that. And as as you point out, he's had very little experience on, on hard courts. He he did really well in in, in Antwerp last fall. Um, I believe he made the final there. So that was his most encouraging hard court result to date. And one advantage he has is, is I don't want to get into the whole the whole surface speed debate about about surfaces slowing down and surfaces becoming more homogeneous and and all of that. That's a subject for another week. But but I think most most people would agree that at least some hardcore surfaces have gotten quite slow, um, especially some of the indoor surfaces that you, you normally think of as quite fast. So it, people were talking a lot about Antwerp then. It was extremely slow. I watched a few matches from the women's event in BLBN uh, last week, and that was extremely slow. I mean, it, it, it was tactically almost playing like clay. So even if even if there are going to be some faster hardcore tournaments and grass court tournaments, that Schwartzman is unlikely to really be a factor in unless, again, as you point out, he gets lucky draws against other clay court guys. Um, There are enough hardcore tournaments on the schedule that even if they don't play like clay, they give him a chance. He's not going to be blown off the court by some some qualifier who happens to be a foot taller than he is he is and and can can ace him all day long so so i think that's encouraging and uh, the fact that he's number 25 in the race the fact that we've got we're going to see him play a full tour level clay schedule for the first time that's really encouraging he's taking full advantage he's playing virtually every week from marrakesh through roland garros so it'll be fascinating to see what he can accomplish and even this upcoming week he's he's the eighth seed in in budapest um and that's not much of a draw. Most of the, the good players playing this week are in Barcelona, so he might not be able to win a title there, but that's the that's the sort of place where he should be racking up points like he did in Istanbul last year. Um, so before we switch over to Fed Cup, where we have a, just an insane amount of, of results to talk about, just a minute about Barcelona. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Rafa's going for another decima there, um, having won nine times already. They named center court after him. Um, Andy Murray took a late entry but of course if we don't know what's going on with him it's an easier draw than Monte Carlo uh, although maybe it won't be easier than the draw that Nadal got from Monte Carlo um, Carl where would you put the odds for Nadal winning his 10th Barcelona title Somewhere between 40
1: and 50% I think What about you
0: That sounds about right um, let's see my my numbers actually are are extremely optimistic about Andy Murray's play chances. They have Murray at 50% and uh, and Nadal down at 23%. Although that doesn't yet uh, doesn't yet include Monte Carlo. So I'll bet that will change a little bit when Monte Carlo numbers are baked in. Uh, but if there's one one sort of point of agreement there, it's that the Barcelona draw is weak enough that a a dominant player would. Have a credible fifty percent chance of winning. Unlike a Masters tournament, where you'd normally give give a uh, an elite player like a thirty to thirty five percent chance of winning. So, so yeah, my, my gut says about the same. There aren't, like I said, there aren't as many good players. Nishikori already withdrew. Um, besides Murray, you're you're looking at Dominic Thiem is the fourth seed. Um, Goffin's there as well. You think Alexander Zverev could be a threat, but not the way he played Nadal last week. So, so yeah, it's it's tough to see somebody somebody beating him in this draw. We could see see another ten time title. And, and one thing, Carl, this is this is something that would not come up on a lot of tennis podcasts. But since we were talking about the your your idea of of players retiring into double, we have to give a quick mention to one of the wild cards in the Barcelona doubles draw, which is the former singles number one. Juan Carlos Ferreira. Um, I don't know much about this. Carl, do you know if this is, is this a comeback or is this just a one-off? I've seen it reported as
1: mostly a one-off, but I, I think you, you never should assume anything even based on how it's reported. I, if he goes on and wins the title, he might make a few more one-offs and then they're not one-offs anymore.
0: Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I. I I didn't think to look it up before we started recording, and I, I have no idea what sort, of, what sort of doubles record he had when, when he was active as a single star. He does have, have a pretty tough draw here. Um, one thing I think it, it, that was funny upon seeing the draw is he, he's playing with Pablo Carreño Busta, and their first round draw is Matkowski and Daniel Nestor. So Ferrero, who retired five years ago, um, is coming back to play someone who's five years older than he is <laughs> in Daniel Nestor. He's actually only one year older than Matkowski as well, and if they do somehow get past Matkowski-Nester, uh, they have a probable uh, a probable second round match against Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez. So it's, it's it's a tough mountain to climb for the Ferrero comeback. It could turn out to be a one off uh, in, in very short order, but it's interesting to see. And and as as you pointed out when we talked doubles a couple weeks ago, it it seems like a great way to bring some fans out. Um, especially in a in a draw that, beyond Murray and and Nadal is not at the same level as a Masters.
1: Yeah, and I I think the the evidence for a one off is strong. His his career high doubles ranking was one ninety eight. His record on tour was six and twenty four, which is pretty remarkably bad for someone who peaked at number one in singles. Uh, people lament now that the top singles guys almost never play doubles, but. Ferrero, who had a reasonably long career, won only six matches at tour level in doubles. So he was an even more extreme case than any of the top players now who all have had some double success at the Olympics, in Davis Cup and other competitions. But as you say, it could be that one way to retire into doubles that works tour wide without any one player working all that hard is to have these occasional cameo appearances And I I think the drug testing rules, which some people find very weak, are still strong enough to make it hard to do that too often. But maybe Ferrero will be a kind of test case for for other players who, who watch and say, oh, that looks like a lot more fun than the senior store that we occasionally play. Maybe we should try that. And Carino Busta has a decent doubles record. He's not a traditional doubles player, but he made the U.S. Open final in doubles so yeah, they could win a round or two. They're certainly playing some top doubles specialists, though. So I wouldn't count on it.
0: Yeah, it does seem to be where it, the good the good doubles players who are playing this week they're they're in Barcelona. So the, I think that the doubles draw might actually uh, turn out to be a stronger draw than the singles because you've got continent Piers are there, Murray Marie Suarez are there. Um, Dotted Gralliers is the number three seed, Lopez Lopez. So it's it, it's almost, it's, it's comparable to the Monte Carlo draw last week, so it's, it's, it's a, a tough test for Ferrero to give himself. But I think it's time to switch over to the women because I spent the weekend watching Fed Cup. I'm, I'm assuming everyone else did too because what on earth else would you do with a, with a weekend with all of these amazing matches happening? It was exhausting just to try to keep up with it. There, we had the World Group semifinals, uh, World Group 1 and World Group 2 playoffs, so in, in addition to the lower level, there were probably dozens of, of, of ties going on. But a few I want to focus on. Let's start at the top with the, with the World Group semifinals. Um, Belarus got past Switzerland in, in what was a surprisingly star-free tie. Um, with Azarenka still out, Belinda Bencic is is really off form, so she didn't play singles at all. Um, Belarus won that on the back of some really impressive play from Alexander Saznovich. But I think we probably have a little more to say about the the America Czech Republic in in the US, in Florida. The US came through in the end in in the doubles rubber at the end, but it was it was pretty weak overall, the the draw that both both teams brought. We had no no Carolina Pliskova. Um, no Saparova, obviously no Serena Williams, but also no Venus Williams, no Madison Keys. So it 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 hinged more on Coco Vandewey and Marketa von Vondrouslova of all people. Um so so with the US winning that, we have the US going to Belarus, I believe, in in the fall for the final where Azarenka will be back. So we have no idea who's going to play for the US at this stage. I don't think um but the Belarus team is pretty top-heavy. With Sasnovich looked great, but she's also a really fringy, top one hundred player. So, Carl, what are what are your early predictions for this? Vika's probably back. We're assuming she's pretty strong, but the U.S. team could take on a lot of different forms at this point.
1: Yeah, the U.S. clearly has more options. Although, before we dive into that, I'm. Curious if you think it's a sure thing that Azarenka will play. I mean, it is a final in Belarus, but having been idle uh, for for so long, and, and Fed Cup not always getting the top players to turn out. Do you think it's it's a sure thing that she'll she'll be there?
0: Um, sure thing is strong, but I I'm, I'm assuming if she's healthy, she'll be there. I mean, she she showed up just to cheer for the team this week. Um, she'll she'll be back pretty soon. I, so. In, back in in tournament play pretty soon so by the time the fed cup rolls around hopefully she's comfortably in in match condition it wouldn't be a stretch for her to have to play back-to-back weeks or something like that um and and she must realize that belarus is only going to have so many chances uh, sasnovich i don't think is is really a future star there, there's a couple of young players on on the squad but she only has so many years. If she wants to win this, this it, I would have to think this is her best opportunity, and, and she realizes that. So the fact that she was she she was there just as a supporter this weekend that that tells me more than than the rest of it does. But but I would assume the the U.S. players, whoever they are, are going to have to get past her. Yeah.
1: Well, then it's you're right. There are a lot of options. I, I figure if they're building the tie around Azarenka, it'll be on a hard court. But that would not be. Any problem for the top U.S. players, you know, I think another big question that will be where Venus Williams is in the rankings in her play. And if she has any interest in showing up, who knows how many more chances she would have to play in a Fed Cup final for the U.S. But it may just not be a priority for her at this point in her career. Uh, Coco Vandewey has been playing great Fed Cup and very committed to it and is strongest or probably strongest on hard and grass. And then, you know, Madison Keys would, would be a tough player if she turned up. I, I think a lot of this tie is going to hinge on who the U.S. is able to get to turn out uh, and how how much they weigh the opportunity to win a Fed Cup final, but away from home.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned that Azarenko would, would clearly prefer a hard court. On the other hand... You have to wonder if Belarus is going to, to run through these scenarios like we have and, and think, yeah, we prefer a hard court, but the U.S. might prefer one even more. The, uh, the top players the U.S. could bring are, especially Vandewey, are, are a heck of a lot better on hard courts, certainly way more comfortable with hard courts. It, it was odd and surprising to me that the U.S. chose green clay for, for this weekend's tie against the, the Czechs. Uh, They they didn't always look very convincing, even though they did get through it. Um, And green clay plays differently than than the real stuff. So there's a a lot of factors to take into consideration. Um, Azarenka is certainly capable on clay courts. And it's interesting to speculate how how Belarus might make that choice. Um, But let's let's move on to some of the the more high-profile singles players, lower down the levels of Fed Cup. Uh, starting with the, with the Group 1 playoffs, we had Germany-Ukraine. Um, Germany ended up winning that tie uh, on the back of, largely on the back of Julia Gerges, who won both of her singles rubbers. Um, but Angelique Kerber did not win both of her singles ties. She or Singles rubbers, rather. She played Alina Spitalina and lost again. Um, Spitalina's beaten her before, and I, I did watch that match start to finish, and it was... I wouldn't, wouldn't say it's lopsided. I believe the final score was 6 4, 6 2, something like that. But the, the last set looked pretty bad for Kerber. I mean, she's, she's not a, a clay specialist by any stretch. Um, she didn't look that comfortable on the surface, but she did win last year in Stuttgart on that exact same court they were playing on this week. So, so I guess, Carl, the question is what does this tell you about Kerber's clay court season? I mean, she's, she's going into this tournament in Stuttgart defending her title. Uh, this, this week in just a couple of days, um, does this change what, what you forecast for her going into the clay season?
1: I didn't forecast all that much, and this didn't change it that much. I mean, she's, she's struggling no matter what the surface this year. And other than Stuttgart, she hasn't really been great on clay in the past. I also think Fed Cup, Davis Cup are, are a little funny to extrapolate from because – it's such a different environment. You're you're guaranteed the matches pretty much. I mean, the captain could potentially sub you if you don't play well in the first match, but you kind of know going in who you're going to play. It's part of this larger context where you could lose but still win the tie as a team like Kerber did with Germany. So I think even if she beats beaten Svitolina, I wouldn't have thought, oh, well, this means that, that she's now going to defend her title in Stuttgart and make a run at the French Open. I, I still... Think it's pretty wide open, where the WTA number one or number two, depending on the week and whose points drop off. Angelique Kerber is just not playing anywhere like even really a top ten player so far this year.
0: Yeah, so I agree one hundred percent about that, and we'll come back to a couple of the questions raised here. The just the the wide open nature of the WTA field right now, especially on clay, and and a certain player who's returning in Stuttgart in a couple of days. But one more Fed Cup highlight I wanted to touch on was, was the fact that we had a matchup of top 10 players in Simona Halep and Joanna Kanta in a World Group 2 playoff. I mean, it's was really a pretty star-studded tie for being that far down the, down the list. It was a really strong performance from Halep. Um, she won that 6-1, 6-3, I believe, uh, and looked very solid. Kanta is not known for her clay court prowess by stretch she'll be in stuttgart as well but i don't think people expect a lot from her on clay certainly she didn't she didn't deliver that much uh, against halep she did beat Sorana carsea um uh, on on saturday in a match that we're remembering for reasons other than the results um uh, but from romania's perspective with with captain monica nicolescu at the helm for the second half of the weekend they managed to get themselves back into group two which to me, I'm a huge Romania fan, huge Simona Halep, Monica, Monica Nicolescu fan. It would be a real shame to see them drop out of World Group 2 because they really ha- can put a very solid uh, a very solid squad on the court. Obviously, any team would be lucky to have Simona Halep, but they've got a nice mix of, of players in that range from number 20 to number 60 or so in the world between Begu and Nicolescu and Terstea. Uh, who are capable on a variety of surfaces. So it, it would have been it would have been pretty painful to see them drop back to zone play. Um, Carl I'm assuming you, I think I saw on your Twitter that, that you followed the some of the mess with Elena Stasi this weekend. Um, do you want to bring us up to speed on what happened there and and, and how that looks going forward?
1: Yeah, so this is Elena Stasi, the former great player and not great personality of, of men's tennis somehow being the, um, the captain and seemingly well-supported captain w- among the R- Romanian players of the Romanian team. Um, he kicked off the weekend at a press conference by making a racist joke about Serena Williams and her pregnancy and, and the child she's expecting. Uh, British press and Romanian press reported it. Uh, he did what so many people do now, which is blame the people who didn't like the joke because it means they didn't have a good sense of humor because uh, joke tellers rights are the most important rights. And it really spiraled out of control. I mean, from what I could see, the people directly reporting on it, the press were mostly responsible in how they reported on it and just reported what he said. And how some people reacted to it, but the sort of second order reaction was very negative to him. And he may have already been experiencing some blowback from that uh, on Saturday when he started lashing out at the press directly, like seeking out members of the British press, um, and then also uh, lashing out at the umpire, complaining that the umpire was trying to quiet the crowd when this isn't the opera, but he used some, some other words for that. And then he he said some terrible things about the British team and and captain. And lesser noticed was initially was that he had also inappropriately basically harassed and propositioned the British captain, uh, former player and thing, uh, par- pardon my pronunciation. So he was just all around a terrible person all weekend, and it created this ripple effect where the Romanian players felt they had to defend him, he was their captain. Um, the crowd was getting into the match. Johanna Kanta broke down in tears in her f- first match and and it paused the the tie for, for a few minutes, which then created some controversy about why it was it was paused. Uh, she said that she felt threatened and that she had she had heard words uh, said against her that, that no one should hear. Uh, it really colored in a very negative way what, what should have been a very positive weekend with, with both sides having a lot of recognizable names and current and former, maybe future stars. Uh, and I think Nastase, you know, long since retired from actually playing tennis can still really ruin tennis uh, with his with his personality. And it's, it's also a reminder, I think, of how when people think nostalgically about the personalities of the sport of the 70s and 80s, some of them were pretty odious personalities that it wouldn't be such a bad thing to rid of tennis now that they're not even playing.
0: Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with your perspective there. It's, it's frustrating to have the narrative taken over by, by someone just being a jerk. Basically we see it happen a lot. I think one, one thing that I don't like about the, the sort of tennis Twitter bubble is, is that the, the off court stuff almost always gets priority because if, if, no matter how bad or obnoxious someone is it's it just it just takes over all, all of the the media attention and and the press focus on focuses on reactions to that they ask every player about their reactions to that and gotten lost in this is some some pretty good tennis and certainly a, a really high profile matchup so in a, in a perfect world uh, I'd hope that people like Nastasi would either their remarks to themselves or or quietly retire to the country um in, in a less perfect world where they're they're not going to do that i wish that we could somehow you know reach the reach the same judgments we are i think i think ev- almost everyone i'm exposed to is is coming down very negatively Anastasia. i don't know how you would react to it any other way but i wish there were a way to do that while still keeping a, a really a really strong balance in favor of of the actual encore tennis um and and i think that's that's partly due to just the the, the way the media works whether it's in, in in tennis or other sports or even even non-sports but it, it might be something specific to tennis as well because it's so it's it's an individual sport we it's very celebrity based and a lot of the biggest celebrities in tennis aren't the active players they are people like Nastasi or John McEnroe or other commentators. Um, so it, it, for someone like me who, who cares maybe 98% about what's happening on court and 2% about the rest, it, it's pretty frustrating because sometimes the balance is, is almost as extreme in the other direction. So like I say, perfect world Nastasi would, would keep his mouth shut and, and hopefully whether it's because he's forced to keep his mouth shut or because he has learned his lesson, uh, hopefully that's what we'll get going forward. But um, let's, Do you have anything else you want to add to that, Carl, before we we switch back to the the tennis?
1: Not a lot. I I generally agree with you. I I think there are a lot of people who follow tennis for way, way more than 2% of the reason because of what's off the court. And it it is a sport that's individual based for the most part, despite our love of doubles. Uh, It is, it can be very personality driven and, I understand that part of the appeal. I think this really was a missed opportunity to focus on tennis. It was great to see there were so many British reporters covering the tie in Romania, uh, not even, you know, in a world group setting. And, you know, I think Kanta is really getting WTA coverage in Britain, which is such an important media market for the sport with Wimbledon and so many of the English language Uh, Press that are that are focusing on the sport year round present in Britain, and it was an opportunity to focus on her and on Halep and all the other players in in the tie. Um, But you know, I think there's also some demand from people who don't follow tennis closely for that kind of news about tennis. That that's something that people who won't tune into that match will read about and get outraged about. so I understand the inclination to, to cover that stuff. It's hard not to. Uh, and it, it was very much Nassasi's choice how to react to it. It could have been a Friday story, and then the rest of the coverage was about tennis. And he very much inserted himself into the story and affected the tennis itself on Saturday. So I I put this pretty much on him. I, I did see some reaction that was of the form of the West doesn't totally understand norms in Romania and different different ideas of what's appropriate for, for joking there. And I see, because this is such a global sport and someone like Nasase has traveled the world, I think everyone needs to be sensitive to everyone. And he, I think knew very well, what kind of reaction he could expect from the things he said and the way he behaved. And uh, it's, it's disingenuous for someone who has traveled the world with the sport as a player and since to hide behind any sort of, Cultural relative relativism argument here.
0: Yeah, I, that's absolutely correct. I, and I would imagine that when with the ATP's university or whatever, whatever they call the the program they send their young stars through, I'd imagine that that young players are hearing a lot of that stuff. Uh, that they're being coached as to to what's what's appropriate and what's not. And so so if a player is coming from somewhere with different cultural norms, they they at least they at least have somebody warning them that you know. Whatever you think is is cool at home, this is this is how the world media is going to react to certain things. And it seems like pretty basic stuff. Maybe it seems basic to us because it's more uh, it, it's more natural and, and we're more accustomed to it. But still, it seems like it, there's some pretty basic guidelines that, that players could be given. And I would guess that Nastasi never had any any in close to an ATP university. But as you point out, he's been in the sport for 40 years, more than 40 years now. So he, he absolutely knows what kind of an effect these actions should have and and it seems like he he's always wanted the attention on him whether he deserves it or not whether he's winning he's losing or he's off the court and coaching in, in a situation like this and that in itself is, is kind of a shame that yes he's a he, he's a bigger star than than most fed Cup players he might even be a bigger name than Simona Halep. but anyone who's coaching something like Davis Cup or fed Cup should realize that it's it's really not about them and I think this isn't an issue that comes up very often because often fed cup and davis cup coaches are rather anonymous but it's something that most of the most of the captains do pretty well uh, I mean they're available for interviews occasionally somebody will say something stupid and show up in the news like this for a few days but for the most part they do stay out of the spotlight and and the ties are about the tennis and at, at the very least about the about the players so it's a shame that now, regardless of the reason why he inserted himself in the story so prominently, it's a shame that, that, that he did that with, with a much better story available on court. So, speaking of better stories available on court, we've had Maria Sharapova off court for 15 months now, and on Wednesday in Stuttgart, she is back. So, this is as it is, as it was last year and, and previously, it's a really star studded draw. Um, Herber is there in her home tournament, Simona Halep, is there. Um, the number two seed is, is Karolina Klishkova. Um, Sharapova is there as a wild card. So she's unseeded, she doesn't get a first-round bye. She could draw um, Agnieszka Radvanska as soon as the, the second round. Uh, the draw was just reshuffled an hour or two before we recorded this on Monday. So Kova is out, but Garbini Muguruza is the potential quarterfinal opponent for Maria Sharapova if she gets that, that far. Uh, Carl, there's been a lot of talk about this, but but I think that 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 we might have some some unique perspectives to, to offer here. What do you expect from from Sharapova coming back? Is she is she when she when she left the tour, at least according to to my my Elo rating, she was top three, and at this point she's unless you account for her absence, she's still top three. There's nobody else showing up right now who who's playing better than she was when she uh, when she was suspended. So with this year and change layoff, do you think she's a threat right now coming back?
1: I absolutely do. I, I mean, I'm prepared for the possibility that she is so rusty that she loses in the first round and Vinci can be a very tough opponent on clay. But I, I think there are a number of factors that that suggests that Sharapova will, will make a, a quick comeback. There's the fact that the timing of her comeback is the clay season, which has been among her best seasons in the last few years of her career. Uh, I think there's the fact that she was out for a doping suspension and not for injury. And uh, was free to, to train as much as as she could. And she was certainly doing some off court stuff and she has off court business interests, but I would be very surprised if she wasn't training to stay in peak form. There's also the incredible fighting style of Sharapova, the um, loving like a tough match and, and loving d- disproving people Would those all sound like intangibles that don't mean much in general, perhaps, but I think she probably feels like she has a giant chip on her shoulder because she felt like the suspension she got was much longer than she deserved, that, that she came forward uh, with with details about uh, her use of meldonium, that she was forthcoming and and that this was an innocent mistake, that it wasn't a drug that enhanced her performance. It's, it's not something we're going to relitigate on the show, I hope, but she certainly has acted like she thinks she's been wronged. And I think that will will drive her. She is old by old tennis standards, but by current tennis standards, she's a lot younger than Serena Williams, who's been pretty dominant the last few years. She was playing, as you say, among the best players on tour before the suspension. Uh, and the the other factor, the other reason I expect really big things from her is that the, the field is kind of open right now. Azarenka isn't back yet, and she too will – be coming back from a long time off court, but with probably a lot less time available to train because she had a kid. Uh, Petra Kvitova is out having been attacked um, in the off season in her home. She theoretically could come back by the French open, she said, but it's, it's unlikely. And she too wouldn't have been able to train at 100%. And there's number of players going to be out for the rest of the year who maybe we'll get to later, but all, all those factors suggest to me that, Sharapova has a very good chance to win some big titles in the clay season.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I've been doing a little research into players after layoffs on the WTA, and and unfortunately, I can't really scoop myself since someone's paying me to write this stuff. But hopefully, in the next in, before Sharapova plays her first match, uh, I'll be able to publish some of this. But but one thing that struck me that that I that I am able to talk about now is. Is how uncharted the territory is that we're in right now. Uh, it, it, it's it's not like we have we have a whole cohort of players who have been near the top of the game and lost more than a year to a doping suspension. And I I looked for players who missed at least six months for any reason, um, starting when they were in the top twenty. Which is, I mean, Sharapova is is far beyond either of those two standards, missing fifteen months and and having been much higher in the rankings than that. But even if we, we, we take the, the, the broader subset like that, you get under 30 players in the history of, of the professional era. So, and, and actually, some of those are, are repeating themselves. So there, there's two instances of, of Justine Hennan, There's three instances, I think, of Serena Williams fitting those criteria. So there aren't very many comparable players. So really, w- w- when you're talking about intangibles, I think, I think you're the same as I am. When someone's talking about intangibles, our, our, our sirens start to go off in our brains that say, like, ah, oh, this person is, is spouting some BS, maybe. But that's really all we have to go on at this point. We, we, can, we can point to, to some things we know that there are certainly instances where players have missed a lot of time and come back and been every bit as good as they were before, as Serena has been on multiple occasions, as Justine Hennon was as well. Um, we can look at her her age as um, as Stephanie Kowalczyk did on, on her blog on the T, and say that you know, someone who someone who's twenty eight generally doesn't lose that much from twenty eight to thirty. If we're if we're looking at top players in that age range, certainly you wouldn't expect that to be the case nowadays. But but we are in uncharted uncharted territory, and it will be very interesting to see how much of a of of sort of a, a rusty patch she has, if any. Uh, and as you point out, I think that one of, the, one of the most important points is, especially on clay, like you mentioned you mentioned the benefits of coming back in clay season specific to Sharapova, because as, as, as you say, she's played very well on, on clay in the last few years. But clay in particular is where the WTA looks really weak right now. Um, Kanta is, according to ELO ratings, Kanta is the, the best active player until Sharapova gets back anyway. Uh, she's the best player who's been who's been consistently active and isn't pregnant right now um and she's not that great on clay um herber looks very shaky on clay so is, so if you're looking at at players who you'd expect to win tournament like stuttgart you can make a case for karolina Plishkova, you can make a case for Hallop. i would certainly like to make a case for halif but But those are players who you can easily see Sharapova beating, even if she's a little bit rusty. I mean, Halep's had a really tough time playing Sharapova in the past. Uh, Not looking forward to their first meeting again. So, so not only is this a surface that where Sharapova can shine, it's it's a surface where she's not going to have as much competition. Uh, If if she does make that quarterfinal against Muguruza, that could be really interesting. You know, really high-profile test for her first week back. But over the course of the next few weeks, playing Stuttgart and Rome and Madrid, uh, it's not all going to be tough tests. They're not all going to be uh, really tough draws like this one where she could get Red and Muguruza in two of the first three rounds. So even if she is rusty, she's immediately in a position to make an impact on tour. No question about that.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with that. You know, I also think... You, you mentioned this is a really tough draw, but in addition to the general clay weakness right now on the WTA, there's almost nobody who I slot in automatically into their expected berth in the second round, in the third round, in the quarterfinals. I, I wouldn't assume that Muguruza will be there. Uh, I wouldn't assume Radwanska will be there. Well, I guess Radwanska gets a bye, so she's a pretty good chance, right? But um, it's, it's just... Draws draws can open up even more than, than they look open because players are weak on clay. They're so weak that what will look like tough draws to Sharapova will really be tough draws for whoever's facing her and in some cases, is my old prediction.
0: Yeah, and that that's a I meant to mention Radvanska as well among the, the top players who aren't that great on clay. So so as as you say, she's Radvanska is, is pretty likely to make it to the second round. What was her first round by? But I mean, I, I haven't looked at how the bookies have a second rounder between Sharapova and Radvanska, but I would put my money on Maria, no questions asked, in, in that match. So, yeah, it, it, the draw will open up. It's just a question of whether it benefits her very much. And, and it, it could be. We'll, we'll see her be rusty for a couple weeks. She could struggle, but I don't think she's going to struggle for long. I mean, most of the players who were in that subset of, of 28 or so players who missed a lot of time – as you mentioned earlier they missed that time due to injury and it is really tough sometimes to come back from a long in- injury break apart from the lack of match play just you're recovering from an injury and, and you've got to be in top physical condition to, to play these uh, these ladies so she she has it better than, than most of the most of these comparable players do and many of the comparable players did just fine even with those limitations so as you pointed out carl there, there's one more topic we wanted to get to today and it looks like we do have have time to talk a little more WTA. Uh, Serena Williams, we now know is is pregnant. She was pregnant when she won the Australian Open, but she's going to be out for quite a while, maybe a year, but she's planning to come back at some point in the future. What that means for us now, besides being happy for Serena and her family and congratulations all around, is we're talking about open draws uh, on the WTA tour draw especially at slams just got massively more open and aside from sharapova who serena has always dominated uh, serena just kind of is your presumptive favorite for any slam at any point in the future <laughs> if we had to make a pick for the 2018 us open i if i had to pick one player i'd probably go with her before i knew she was pregnant and even now after after we know she's going to have a baby between now and then so so carl what what do you think this does overall uh, for the WTA? How, how did? It, who are the players who you think are, are are going to benefit the most from from having a break from Serena Williams on on tour?
1: I think you have to start with Sharapova and Azarenka. It's funny to start with them because they haven't played matches in so long, and we're still somewhat guessing at how good they'll be when when they get back. Educated guesses, of course, but. I think the rest of the tour has shown so much chaos uh, recently and so much proclivity for top players to lose to just about anyone. Um, I, I shouldn't say it all negatively. It's been very exciting. It's been very unpredictable. It's a sign of the depth of the field. It's it's good for women's tennis in that sense, but it means there ha- there hasn't been someone who's really taken advantage of Serena Williams' absence, Sharapova's absence, Azarenka, Kvitova. And Sharapova and Azarenka have been for a number of years pretty consistently beating the players below them in the rankings, pretty consistently getting to the late rounds of big tournaments. And Serena Williams won't be waiting for them this year. I think two other players more after the clay season who could benefit quite a bit are Karolina Pliskova and Johanna Kanta. Uh, They could certainly... Uh, be be seen as two of the most consistent players this year, and one's maybe pushed about less so because she beat Serena Williams at the U.S. Open last year, but uh, both of them probably would also rather not face Serena Williams, even though she hasn't been as consistent a kind of stopper in their careers as she has been for Azarenka and Sharapova. I think maybe the one other player I'd put in there, again, not as much in the clay season, is Wozniacki, uh, with or without Serena Williams, I wouldn't expect much from her on clay or really on grass, but Serena Williams has blocked her a few times at big hardcourt tournaments, and Wozniacki has been very, very consistent and strong on hardcourts for the last nine months or so. So, yeah, to me, those are the five players who could really take advantage of Serena Williams' absence this year.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. One thing that I it's been fascinating to me for as long as I've been generating ELO ratings... Is is that you have Serena and Vika and Sharapova in the top three? Um, I don't know how far back that goes. I'll have to I'll have to check my database to see how long they've been dominating the, the top of the game. But it, because of because of the way the Elo ratings work, there's no mechanism for players to lose, lose points from from missing time. I'm hoping to to sort out a little bit of of what kind of an effect missed time has. But the little bit of work I've done already suggests that there there isn't much. It, at the very least, some of the some of the common ways that, that people deal with this problem in rating systems, like for, for chess, for instance, uh, it doesn't work for tennis. If, if you if you if you make a player's rating more volatile, let's say when they come back to reflect the fact that you don't have as much recent information to go on, if you apply those changes to a rating system for tennis, you actually make the rating system worse. So so that that's not 100 percent proof. I haven't really thoroughly analyzed this, but Point being, you have these three players who were at the top of the game the last time they were all active and healthy and not suspended. And since that time, with Serena missing missing a lot of time, even though she's been winning when she does play, Sharapova suspended, Victoria Azarenka pregnant and off tour, uh, the rankings haven't changed. No one else is climbing to that same level. So it, it, it's kind of like, if you can imagine a parallel in men's tennis, having the big four all suddenly drop off the radar for a little while and and no one else picking up that slack. Obviously, someone's going to win the tournament, but since ELO is based more on the quality of opponents that you play and you don't automatically have somebody getting 2,000 points from winning every Grand Slam or 1,000 points from winning a Masters, um, you can have a situation where a field is more, more... evenly matched and instead of having a player who like Serena Williams is up around the 2400 or 25 2500 point Elo level you can have a few players who are more like 2200 and that's exactly what we have now if you take out Serena and Vika and Sharapova contest number 1 and you have six more players i think who are all within 50 points of each other which in, in Elo terms is is not a very big difference I and mean, 50 points is like a 50% 57% chance of the better player winning so it's a pretty tightly packed group. And at most points in the past, you would have a few players emerging as as a lot better. And I think what, what you're suggesting is right, that you have a few players who could very well take advantage of that absence. And, and certainly, we'll, we'll have to have a lot of, of question marks resolved in the cases of Azarenk and Sharapova, but you, I agree 100% to point out Kontent and Pliskova, because they are the two players who have come the closest to, to picking up that slack, winning a ton of matches, beating the players you're supposed to beat. And they have the sort of games that make you think a little bit of Serena and Sharapova and, and, and maybe to a little lesser extent Azarenka because they can, they can dominate off the serve. Uh, they're, they're aggressive in terms of putting points away on their second or third shots, especially behind the serve. And that's a more reliable sort of game to rack up a ton of points on hard courts than someone like Red Vonska or Simona Halep, who has to play well, and they can't have somebody show up and just bash them off the court for an hour and get lucky, as it, certainly that's happened to Halep a number of times. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised at all to see to see Konta and Pliskova in the top three at the end of the year, certainly certainly in the top five, once, once Serena's out of the rankings and I guess we'll have to wait and see to what extent Azarenka and Sharapova are able to build themselves back up, which leads me to a question that I think we can close with. Right now, thinking about Sharapova's longer term prospects to the end of the year, she hasn't played, obviously, up to this point in shoot guard. so she, she has zero points for the first almost four months of the season. But given what we predict for her comeback, what do you think her ranking is gonna be at the end of the year?
1: That's a great question. And even though I could tell that's where you were going, I was still struggling for an answer. I I think the the sort of average case uh, accounting for she could go on a tear and finish near the top and she could turn out to have really declined while being out. I think the average case is around number five. How about you?
0: Yep, I was going to say number five. What about Azarenka?
1: When is Azarenka coming back? Pretty soon, right?
0: Yes, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember whether she'll be back for the French Open or not. So, I mean, she won't. She won't have a, a shot at as many points as Sharapova. Obviously,
1: I'll give her number eleven.
0: That sounds about right. I'll put her in the top ten, but that is, that's that seems certainly seems plausible. Um, so, so if we have if we both have Sharapova at number five, I think it would be tough for her to get. Much higher than that, unless by some miracle she, she, she sweeps the slams, or, or at least plays really well in, in all three of the remaining slams. Um, what, what's your guess for? With, with, with no Serena, we're figuring Azarenka is fringy top 10. Let's say, let's say we're both right, and Maria Sharapova is your year-end number five. Who's your year-end top four?
1: Oh boy. All right, well, I'm going to filibuster while I get the live ranking up, which is always helpful for answering a question like this. So I you know I have to put in there Pliskova and Kanta because of how they've started the season and because Elo suggests that they are the, the best among active players. I, I threw in Wozniacki, and she is almost number she's almost number one in the race right behind Pliskova. I don't expect her to get too many points the next couple of months but i could certainly see her having another great hardcore summer and fall like she did last year so i'll put her in there too uh i don't see venus williams staying there at the end of the season although she is there now so i think i'd put the fourth as Fidelina. she's 22 and she's had a lot of big wins in the last 12 months and i i really wouldn't be surprised if she's uh really close to number one by the end of the year
0: interesting that's a pretty optimistic take for Spitalina uh, I, I sometimes I, I mean I've, I've watched her quite a bit I really enjoy her game uh, especially when she's playing well and when she is playing well like she was against Kerber yesterday uh, that's absolutely an example of, of Spitalina playing maybe not her best but but the sort of game that makes people say future number one for her um, I would love to see her play that well over the course of the season. Uh, I think she probably is a, a future number one at some point. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be in the next year or two. So I agree. Pliskova absolutely. Kanta, probably. Um, with Wozniacki, oof. It's, it, my gut says no, but you're you're right to start with the live ranking. She's Obviously, we, we've seen more than a third of the season so far, and she is very close to number one for that first third of the season. But with three slams to play, I'm going to say she ends up number six behind Sharapova. I'm going to fill out my top five with, with Halep, of course. Um, and and I'm going to say Kerber, just because I, ha- I have a hard time seeing her continue to struggle as much as she has. So if I had to pin down pin down numbers, I'd say push to number one, followed by, mm, I guess, Kanta, then Halep. Um, and my mind is just going blank on who I just said for number four, Angelique Kerber. <laughs> But I could, I could see those four, especially the top three, um, mixing up in, in, in different ways. So I think this conversation really highlights how, how wide open this field is because there, there's certainly other people we could be talking about. If, if, if Sybil Kova manages to come back from, from her injury, she, she's going to be a factor. Um, I mean, Spitalina, you're right to put her in the conversation, but I also have a, a tough time with Venus Williams, who's number five in the race right now. So the I mean, Radvanska could have a tear on hard courts this summer. There, there's a lot of a lot of possibilities, and it'll be super interesting to see how how Sharapova and Azarenka and even potentially Petra Kavitova fit into that as well. So Carl, any, any closing thoughts as we, we enter yet another crazy week of tennis? I just want
1: to highlight for listeners that Jeff Jeff's way of picking is pretty much go with the algorithm and go with Simona Halep Hallep is 44th in the live rankings until this past weekend showed very little reason to expect her to be in the top 10 at the end of the season. And I admire your persistence with that pick. And if she's, and if you're right and she finishes in the top five, I will admire it all the more.
0: Well, thank you. I, I did have to restrain myself a little bit because I wanted to put Mon- Monica Nicolescu in the top five with her but I will will default to the algorithm a little bit on issues that are not directly related to Simona Halep. So I will merely say that Monica Nicolescu is is the greatest Fed Cup captain of all time. Uh, I mean, she's currently undefeated as Fed Cup captain and and I would would expect that she'll stay that way. So I think that wraps us up for this week. I think we, we've managed to cover a, a huge amount of what was a, an absolutely crazy tennis week. And, and we're looking forward to another one with, with two events on both the men's and women's side this week. So, so thank you for joining us, everybody. Um, we mentioned a couple, a couple pieces on, on the Tennis Abstract blog. I hope you'll, you'll read that stuff and follow both of us on Twitter throughout the week. I'm sure we'll have plenty more to say, especially with Sharapova coming back. So Carl, thank you for joining me as always. Thanks, Jeff. And we will see you next week.